In the days of Amraphel, king of Sinar, Arioch, king of Alasar, Kedorlamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adama, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlamor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlamor and his kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, the Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and Imam in Shaveh, Karithaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came from En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adama, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedorlamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, the four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram, his brother, his nephew, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. And these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. And he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of uh, Kedorlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshcol and Mamre take their share. This is God's word. And let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you 
again for another Sunday. Time together in your house and time to study your word. Lord, would you bless this word? May we understand it. May we obey it. And may we be an encouragement to others around us, perhaps already or as we leave. But Lord, for the purpose of strengthening ourselves, but in you. We ask now that you again be our teacher. May we be your students. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, if I would have begun by asking uh, each of you uh, in your book reading or your movie viewing or your TV show binging, now that most of that's available by streaming, sounds like someone may be streaming now. (laughs) Hey, it happens. Every one of us have a phone in our pockets. The one thing I do when I walk in is turn mine into a clock and mute it. Because my brother likes to call me while I'm preaching. (laughs) He never did that to dad, but he does it to me. Um, If I would have asked you, how many of you like adventure or uh, epic battle scenes or good versus evil or hostage situation where the good guy um, outnumbered goes and rescues his family member and brings him back in everything, plus some? And then I added, and how many of you... Just absolutely love complicated lists of names and geographic locations that no one knows where they are anymore. If you answered yes to all of that, including the last, then Genesis 14 is right up your alley. Uh, What do we do with most of that? Because there are some very important aspects. But the setting and how it happened and who's involved... Really, there are a few of them that we can locate. Some of the names uh, that would be had, had been written in Hebrew uh, were not Hebrews, and they match up with other people that we find in the general geographical location. But to say absolutely for sure we know all these people in all these places would be to say something that most would go, uh, I doubt it. So... For the first time in the book, the, 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 the one thing that probably grabs the attention to start with is that these events recorded, that'd be Abraham, these uh, groupings of kings and those battling with one another, they're purposely coordinated with external history. Uh, anytime you find where the Bible, which some would just think to be a work of fiction, has time stamps and persons of interest from other cultures and other places. In fact, just in my lifetime, there have been things in the New Testament we thought we didn't know anything about until they dug these things up out of the dirt. Uh, And not so long ago, an inscription with the word Pontius Pilate, who had disappeared from all other records until we found it there. So this is one of those times and places where, hey... You've got the Bible that uh, is hand-in-hand with the rest of the world's history. But again, this is a reach for some of these names in some of these places. Uh, Nonetheless, real people and real places. Uh, The focus remains on Abram, though. That's pretty clear uh, since chapter 12 and through uh, much of the remainder of the book of Genesis. His name is going to be front and center. He's prepared in this case to fight for the cause and to fight for his kinsmen. That would be Lot, who's been kidnapped 
though mindful of his calling as God's chosen. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But the course of events uh, in this episode follow a pattern that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament from time to time. And that would be a group of subjugated towns, cities, or city-states defy their overlord and incur incur, uh, swift punishment. Usually these are small guys. They're paying taxes to the big guys. Uh, They decide they don't want to pay. And the big guys say, "Uh, yeah, you will. And then it's just a big, awful bloodbath. So has been the history of world civilization um, even into uh, years past that our generation still can remember with World War One and Two and threats of number three. Warfare has been part of this globe since um, really the Garden of Eden. But there's a profound contrast between the two kings approaching Abram after the dust is settled on this open warfare. We read of This name Melchizedek, that'll show up again in Genesis and then again in Hebrews. He is the king and priest of Salem. And then uh, whose name and title indicative of the realm of right and good. It's pretty easy to see that Melchizedek is the good guy. And then you've got Berah, king of Sodom, who offers a handsome business-like offer that's surely soiled with compromise and self-interest. He was defeated, but he thinks that he might be able to work something out with Abram and the two of them stronger than they were to begin with. Now, what's truly at stake in this chapter, and this is key, it's it's complicated. It'll take us some time to get through a few of these things. But if all we do is remember that not the struggle of the kings or the clash of the armies or the spoil of many cities is the point. What's the point? The risk is the faith or failure of one man, and that's Abram, and how he decides what to do when faced with two options after this war is over and lines are redrawn and all sorts of things. Uh, The man God promised to be a blessing to all nations is this man Abram. Will God continue to keep his promise? Will Abram work with God in that promise or against him like he did when he told his wife to say she was his sister, if you remember from a few weeks past. So let's see if we can unwind the story as it unfolds, and then we'll wind it back up, try to make a point or two or three, and uh, then we'll go have lunch. That is, uh, you'll get lunch and I'll get lunch, but I don't know that each of us will go to lunch together. (laughs) Try to be clear in what's said, right? (laughs) So tension escalates from the conflict of two warring coalition of kings. Specific names and persons, places are all over the map, but the warring parties can be divided into eastern and western alliances. If you had a map, maybe you've got a map, you know, after Revelation that shows some of this. Uh, But Israel is uh, a, a tall area on the map about the size of New Jersey. If you've got the Sea of Galilee at the top and then the Jordan River down uh, through the middle and the Dead Sea much bigger than the Sea of Galilee at the very bottom uh, where Abram and sometimes it's east to west it's it's, uh, elevation they're talking about. And then sometimes it's just north, south, east, west. 
They're going down the river along what they would call the king's highway. So the Eastern Alliance consisted of four kings led by Cadorlamor. He had the longest name of all of them. You wonder if he got to be king because his name's the longest. And it sounds like someone made it up for Star Wars or, I don't know, Harry Potter or something. Cadorlamor. Sounds like a big bad fella. Well, he was. And he's the king of Elam. Uh, who had been extracting tribute or taxes from the western kings for 12 years, we read. Now, in the 13th year, the western kings stopped paying the tribute. They just said, we've had it, we're not going to pay it anymore. And nothing happened. But in the 14th year, Cadorlamor begins his campaign of vengeance, defeating six city-states from north to south along the king's highway before turning uh, in an eastern direction from west to east. So eventually, as the earlier wars, the Eastern Confederation easily prevailed over the miserable kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the last at the bottom of the map. The Valley of Siddim is the place of battle. It was called the Salt Sea. Worked in favor of Cadorlamor as its bitumen pits, which is tar or asphalt, became traps for the fleeing inhabitants. So... uh, I don't know, some of you in here, I do know, have been over to Israel. You've been to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. The reason why it is so full of salt is the deepest elevation on the planet. Uh, All of the minerals in those hills, as rain falls, uh, leaches out of those stones and gathers in that body of water. It's a lot smaller than it used to be. There's a lot more people drinking up that water before it ever gets to the Sea of Galilee, much less the Jordan River, and doesn't eventually dump into the Dead Sea. But if you've ever been there or seen pictures of it, because the salinity is somewhere in excess of 30%, uh, there's lots of crystals that grow along the edge. You would want to have some type of uh, beach shoe or surf shoe to walk around in there. And if you do get in, you float quite high on the water. Uh, I had the option to do that twice. I declined both times and went to the McDonald's instead. Uh, Because everybody told me, you're going to be itching and scratching and burning uh, for a very long time, and especially if you get the stuff in your eyes. I decided rather to buy some uh, mud that people put on their faces from the bottom and then decided not to do that on the second trip because... Those packs of mud, if lined up in the bottom of your suitcase, look like something else in the screening at the airport, and you'll hold up the whole trip. So uh, just in case you came to church to hear those little the, you know, hacks for traveling to Israel. But what's said here about around um, Sodom and Gomorrah of bitumen pits or bitumen, depending on who's making the pronunciation... Uh, It's very close to the asphalt we drive on, but it's a naturally occurring petroleum substance. Uh, They do some emulsification, I think, on our roads to make it adhere at lower temperatures. But this stuff, being petroleum, floats. And in these bogs, the stuff would come up and it would float, but it's sticky. And it provided... uh, least those invading a way to maneuver such to chase the people so they'd get stuck in these bitumen pits. And uh, this will come up later when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed 
And interestingly enough, it's mentioned how it smokes. Well, all around the place is floating with petroleum, flammable stuff. So they're stuck here. Some go into the hills. Some are, are captured. And the outcome of the initial conquest is the defeat of Sodom, but more importantly, the capture of Lot. This is Abram's nephew, who in the previous episode decided... He wants to take the Jordan Valley. It's well watered and moved his tent close to Sodom. He's basically lost everything that he gained in the previous chapter. But as soon as Abram finds out that his nephew's been captured, he decides he's going to go get him. So the second movement, you could uh, break this chapter into two halves. The second half begins in somewhere around verse 14. Abram surprises the armies of Kedorlamor by ambush under the cloak of darkness. Let's read that again in verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. And it just started with him and his family leaving Ur of the Chaldees, and now there's 318 fighting men. There's lots of women and children, we assume, as well. Went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is way up above the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Tell Dan you can go see that today. So he's made quite a journey taking care of business, and he's worked his way back down. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Uh, That's where, uh, you know, Saul of Tarsus met the Lord on the road to Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, brought back his kinsmen lot with possessions, women, and the people. So this would take a while. It would take a while to fight his way all the way up. It would take a while. You know, we worry about getting a moving truck and packing the house. This is basically the entire contents of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And bringing them back with lot, all the people, all the stuff. So upon Abram's victorious return, and this is where we'll need to do some thinking, we'll do a little bit more reading, he meets the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Uh, This is where we need to pay careful attention because the contrast involved with Abram's option between going with the king of Sodom, going with the king of Salem. And really, we don't even have answer to the question, where did the king of Salem come from? Why is he showing up to this party? Uh, what's his interests? And really, who is he? And who is the author of Hebrews referring back to in reference to Jesus, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? Very mysterious figure, but he's here. And uh, not only does Abram, is Abram treated differently by either of these men? We're also going to read that Abram treats these two men very differently as well. So verse 17, after his return from the defeat of that guy and kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. Sounds ominous. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This sounds very positive. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Who? 
this Melchizedek person. He gives a tenth of all the take of this war. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, and this is where we read that he lifted his head and promised, I'm not taking a shoestring, a thread from you. I don't want you ever saying that I got rich from you. You can tell this is negative. He doesn't want anything to do with this man or his, his stuff. So he says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So those that were called his allies, Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take something, but I want nothing. So picking up on these differences and noting the contrast, we need to ask ourselves, what's here? What do we need to think of this? So if you just contrast the way the two of them spoke and what was said about how they did it, the king of Sodom came out. You see that a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, Goliath came out to taunt the men of Israel. And then David comes out. Coming out is kind of an official, um, you know, with some pomp and some flags and maybe some horses. It's impossible for me to read through these ancient accounts of war and not think of, you know, silly stuff I watched growing up like Conan the Barbarian. Uh, but you would think their outfits and stuff, on, maybe the horns on it, these are pagan kings, you know. They've got to make themselves look big and dangerous. And this fellow comes out. I have no idea what he looks like. Uh, is he wearing something big, reflective, heavy, made out of metal? Is it all fur? Don't know. Use your imagination as you see fit. But uh, he comes out in the Valley of Siddim. That was, that was before, uh, and actually for the purpose of being beat down by Kedorlamor. I mean, it was a rout. So now he stands in front of God's man and this king of Salem as though he's forgotten that he's been defeated. You got the same words. Uh, he comes out. He's, he doesn't seem humbled at all. Now, Melchizedek, he speaks first, king of Salem. He doesn't come out. He brought out uh, food. It was uh, wine and bread, as if to set something for them to have a discussion, perhaps. Very hospitable in the way it sounds. Um, first word spoken by the king of Salem is blessed. Blessed be this man and blessed be his God. First words out of Sodom's king's mouth, give me. You know, uh, give me the people, you take the stuff. As if he still has anything to even negotiate or bargain with. Also, Sodom's king attempts to bargain for the spoils. We just mentioned that, give me the people, you take the stuff. But Abram makes it crystal clear that he wants nothing to do with any of it after having given a tenth of it to the king of Salem. So I don't know if the king of Sodom sitting there watch one-tenth of all this just be slid over to the side. Here, all that is yours. And it's noted as a tithe, which is interesting because the tithe hasn't come up yet. People of Israel haven't even come together as a nation yet. There's no such thing as sacrifices. And we're hearing about a priest who's a king. In the New Testament, we hear of a prophet, priest, and king on the order of this fellow. But all that won't make sense at all until we get very far downstream. Now, 
Unlike Lot, um, who'd lived in Sodom, Abram lived a safe distance away at Mamre. Now, Mamre was a town named after the fellow Mamre, who takes a share uh, after Abram says he doesn't want any, and the king of Salem's gotten his 10%. But the passage confirms that it was Lot, not the possessions, that drew Abram into battle. Abram's pretty much a um, conscientious objector as far as that stuff goes until he finds out that Lot is part of this. So he has uh, some form of immunity until he decides to get in. But it's because of Lot, because of his family. In case anybody wondered when they split up the land, this is just to get rid of him. It's not to just get rid of him. He's going to risk his whole family in order to go back and get one man. That should tell you something about Abram. Abram's leading at least 318 men born in his own household illustrates his now substantial wealth and power. It's growing every time we turn the page in Genesis. And without Abram, Lot, who took the well-watered Jordan Valley as his share, would now have been completely broke, if not dead. And then one more thing, and then we'll start asking questions from this as to what we can learn. Melchizedek offered Abram a blessing. And his blessing takes the form of an invocation. He's calling God's name in on the affairs of men at the moment. And that's typical um, of what we read in the Old Testament and in Genesis. But assumed that only the Lord could ultimately bestow a blessing. A benedictory prayer petitions God for prosperity and well-being. So you got this man, he approaches Abraham, blessed be Abraham, and blessed be God who gave him his enemies into his hand. It's not as if he's saying, here, I, I want this, uh, this alliance between the two of us so that two of us being more than one of us is stronger and will have better of everything. He's, he's claiming all these things based on this... God most high. He'll do the blessing. He'll do the preserving. He'll do the protecting. He'll do the defending. If there's any honor to be bestowed, he'll be the one that does it instead of us giving each other honor. It seems to be clear in the way that that works. And then um, Abram's raised hand accompanying his, his own oath. His oath was, I'm not taking any not a thread, not a, a sandal strap. Uh, none of the spoils was spoken before the Lord. That's kind of a way to point to heaven. And Abram is doing one of these invocations of sorts. But if you notice, he adds the word Lord in front of God Most High. Lord in our Bibles is a reference to Yahweh. This is the first time. Yahweh would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh is using the letters that they would write out uh, and then most of them would break the pen and throw it away and never use but a brand new pen to write that. That name was so holy and so sacred and is difficult to even be pronounced. We're adding letters to help us actually say it. They wouldn't even say it. So what is Abram doing when he's echoing 
God Most High, which was said by the king of Salem, but adding Yahweh in front of it. He's echoing the language of Salem's king in his blessing, but adding the divine name Yahweh, identifying Melchizedek's God as his own. They serve the same God. And what is Salem? Well, it was called Salem here, but later it's going to be called Jerusalem. Jerusalem better, or Jerusalem, if you hear them say it over in the Mideast. This mysterious man, most believe not to be a pre-incarnate Christ, but a magnificent type of Christ to come. Later we talk about King David, and one day a king will sit on David's throne, like David, but better than David. Well, in Hebrews, we're talking about Jesus, who was a priest and a king, but better than the priest and king Melchizedek from Salem. So these are all little things that help us make sense of the Messiah being who he said he was and knowing who he is when he arrives, putting all these little pieces together that take place over thousands of years. So what do we learn from this? Well, I think an easy layup is just to keep the same theme that we've been looking at since we started in Genesis 12. God promised that he'd make a nation out of Abram to bless the world and, of course, in the process of time, introduce his gift to the world, his son, because he loved the world so much. Whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's through the Jewish people that the Messiah is going to come. So that's the end of the road. But here at the beginning, he's promised to do all these things. Then we get to the second half of chapter 12. There's a famine. Uh, How's he supposed to be a nation if he starves to death? He goes to Egypt. He's worried that people will want to run off with his dangerously beautiful 65-year-old wife. Remember that? So he says, tell him you're my sister, which was a half-truth, but makes up to be a full lie especially when the Pharaoh wants your wife and takes her thinking she's your sister. And whether or not they actually got married, we don't know. A lot of plagues in the house, big problem. He goes to Abram, why in the world would you lie to me like that? Get me in all this trouble. Take your wife and get out of here and take all this stuff. I don't even want the dowry back. So Abraham's misbehaving, but he's getting richer. And then in the 13th chapter, He's so rich that they can't all live in one place. And he says, Lot, pick what you want. I'll take what's left. You think, oh, that's kind of a passive way to go about it. But it was couched under the term, let there be no strife between us. Arguing over dirt is less important than us being together as a family. And we see that again here now. But God is going to keep his promise, even though the story is going left and right and up and down and all over the map. He's still richer isn't he? And not only has he got 318 fighting men in his family, but he wins the battle and he doesn't even need the spoil he has so much. Before too long, he'll rule over all the rest of these. So God is keeping his promise. And remember, it depends on God first. Abraham can do what's right. Abraham can do what's wrong. And God still makes good on his promises. Number two, The way Abram walks by faith in chapter 13 is different than the way he walked by faith, or 14, than he walked by faith in 13. 
Walking by faith then seemed to involve giving up his rights to choose the better land and letting his nephew take the good part. It's kind of a passive role, wouldn't you say? Just, just don't do anything. Let the other guy do his thing, which is not right. Now in chapter 14, it involves taking your family and going to war to go get the dumber part of your family back <laughs> who shouldn't have went down there to start with. And I don't know, if, you, if you're trying to, to take this that's wasness in history and plop it down in isness right here in the present, uh, does that mean I'm going to have to be flexible enough with the wisdom God gives to be faithful as the direction of my life turns up, down, left, right? I think so. I think walking by faith um, is kind of like that stock market nobody can figure out. They say robots have figured it out. No, robots are just faster at jumping on something that's obvious than humans are. But think of that. What does walking by faith as a Christian look like for you this coming week? What does it look like for you next month? What does it look like for you next year? I don't even know if I can see past this coming week. Much less, I mean, just think about what it was like before Christmas. We've had two funerals in this church. And we're likely to have two more within the next few days. None of that was on the radar just before Christmas. Fast forward four years back. We have a good Christmas, a good New Year's. Everybody's doing what they do. Come February, there's these goofy stories going around. By March, everything's locked down. And somewhere in March, I'm alone except for three other people talking to the rest of you in that little camera right there and trying to make it look like I know what I'm doing in an empty room, talking to nobody but a camera. Everything can change, but... God's promises, especially the ones to take his children home to be with him where he's gone to prepare a place, is going to happen. Nobody's going to thwart the promises of God that be kept. But as it depends on you who must trust him by faith and repent of your sins, some of this is on you. Even though we've got passages that talk like, okay, uh, for it is God that works in you, uh, to do of his own will, but then he tells you to work out your own salvation. Who's working there? God? You? Yes. Or in Jude, where he starts out by saying to those who are called and kept in the faith. Then later at the bottom, he says, uh, keep yourselves by maintaining your understanding of the scripture and so on and so forth. And then at the end, now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Who's keeping you? God or you? Yes, we're in this together. We make promises and we break them. God makes promises, he never breaks them. But walking by faith is necessary on our part, no matter what comes. Sitting back and letting somebody take what's rightfully yours or standing up and taking back what was wrongfully taken. He's got both, both of those options one chapter away from the other. I'd say they live on the same street as far as an address, wouldn't you? And then a final one, and this, uh, this may be more fuzzy than the rest, depending on um, whichever ears this falls on. But I thought this was good. I saw it said this way and thought worth bringing to church with me. 
Though God's blessing often comes from or through the world we live in, those blessings should never entangle us in this world we live in. That's, that's the end part where Abraham has the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Now the king of Sodom, it sounds like a handsome deal. You just give me the people. You get all the stuff. We'll start over. All the stuff. King of Salem offers nothing. In fact, he takes 10%. Abram seems to recognize this man is uh, above me in the pecking order of God's men on earth. I'm going to tithe to this fellow. So it not only cost him giving some away, but not keeping any of the rest. And who are we talking about? The one that later Jesus is going to be patterned after. Melchizedek. And then in the weeks to come, we're going to find out what happens to Sodom. And Sodom is known for its sin. And there are specific details given about that sin. But we learn in the New Testament that sin is sin is sin. It doesn't matter the details of the sin. All sin is an offense to God and is punishable by death. And in case you wonder how hard of a God this is, the same God sends his only son to take the punishment for all that awful sin. So we're going to be covering the basis of, of, of a great number of theological um, pillars of our understanding of Christianity. But think about that. God's blessing often comes through the world. Those cattle, that silver, that gold, these alliances he's building, that's stuff you hold with your hands. It's part of this world. But so far it doesn't look like Abram's gotten entangled with it such that he's no longer of use to the Lord who chose him to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Every last one of us has to deal with this. Um, in the temptation of Christ after 40 days of fasting, it was all stuff. Wasn't it? He's got to decide, do I want to let the devil cut me a check for what I already own and get it quicker? Or do I want to do what my father said, go through the process of atoning for the sins of the whole world by my awful death on the cross so that I can be king over the world the right way? Um, everything's a trade-off, isn't it? Really? I mean, it's just life. It's like you got this little slider and I want more of this. But while you're getting more of this, you're getting less of this. It's a trade-off. Uh, our schedules, I think, this side of 2020, are much more complicated than they used to be. We learned we can do a lot from home. We learned that we can travel a lot more. I've never seen a church have more difficulty finding volunteers. Something after COVID gave us all an allergic reaction to commitment. I don't know why. We want to hold those cards. Maybe it's just uh, we got burnt. Our, our reference point to reality got all jumbled up. So I'll just hold on to it now. Well, God's still going to take us to heaven if we belong to him. And there's still a lot of lost people that need to go with us. We're going to have to let him be him. Trust him to be him. And hold all of that stuff with open hands. Hold it tight. 
it hurts more when he has to take it anyway. And we usually give up anything he wants to give on top of it. It's hard to put something into a closed fist. Uh, my dad used to say, it was, it was Job who said, God gives, he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, all of the stuff here that we want to pull and hoard and put under our roofs and into our pockets and into our closets and into our accounts. Be careful how they attach themselves to you and entangle you in the world such as it is. This past Wednesday night, we went through a parable where Jesus, last week of his life on earth, he's asked to go to a, it seems, a luncheon. It's a setup. They have a diseased person. They want to see if he'll heal him on the Sabbath, and they got more to throw at him when they try to get him killed. He heals the man and sends him off, and then he notices the people at the lunch are jockeying for position to get the best seats. And then he knows that the fella um, who, who put on the dinner had set Jesus up in the first place. So he does what no one ever does at a dinner or lunch gathering. He tore the whole thing up by telling them exactly what he thought of them and exactly how they were wrong. Don't pick the best seats. If you do that, it's likely that someone who's better than you and more important to the family are going to come and say, you need to get out of your seat here. Uh, we need these people to sit down and then you've got to go find one and you're late and you've probably got to sit in the back. And then for the guy who uh, had thrown the party, he said, next time you do this, don't invite your friends and rich people and your neighbors that you want to impress because all they're ever going to do is just do the same thing for you and you're going to play uh, it's my turn scratching each other's back for the rest of your miserable experience. Go get the, blame, the blind and the lame and the poor and people that can't pay you back and then you'll be doing something that's actually by definition called hospitality. Why you invited me here, but that's not what you did. You're just posturing because you're so entangled with each other's stuff. And then he lowered the boom. He gave this whole story about a big feast where a guy throws all this party and all these invitations, and to a man, all of them give excuses. Can't come. But I threw this big feast. Why can't you come? The first guy said, I bought some land and I need to go see it. Which is dumb because you go see your land before you buy it, right? I looked at my land before I bought mine. You probably did too. And I said on Wednesday night, except maybe in this area where you're so scared somebody else is going to buy it before you buy it because there's not enough. Maybe you buy it unseen. But the second guy bought some oxen and he needed to go prove them. Again, that's dumb. Um, you prove the oxen before you buy it. It's like driving, test driving before you buy the car. And then the last one said... I married a wife. I can't come. And he didn't even say, give me an excuse. I'm sure that one's more complicated than the rest. I'll stay out of that. But he should have took his wife with him to the party. And then the story goes, servants, go out and get the blind and the lame and anybody you can find. And the servant says, we've done that already and there's still room. And then he says, go compel people because I don't want an empty house with my banquet. The whole parable is spoken to people who've rejected Jesus as who he is and what he's here to do. And the party is heaven. And all of these Pharisees and scribes and rulers are too busy with their stuff to get to heaven. 
That's the point of the parable. Now, what were the categories? Land, that's your wealth. The cattle, that's your business. And the wife, that's your relationships. We're going to find out Lot's probably going to miss the boat. In fact, most of the world's going to miss the boat, it seems. And it's not bad things. Family, business, wealth. But if they're an excuse for paying attention, if they entangle you enough to keep your mind down here on earth, that it can't think of heaven. Not only will this life be in a miserable existence, but it'll be your heaven. I remember that said one time, scared the absolute hoot out of me as a kid. If everything is in this life, this life is your heaven because you're headed for hell without Jesus. But if you're headed for heaven with Jesus, then this life right here is the only hell you'll ever know. Sometimes I feel like it's hell. That's not supposed to be a joke because it hurts really bad when things don't go right. You say goodbye to people early when people lie to you or steal from you or whatever else. There's a lot to learn from this fellow Abraham. Stumbling his way through walking by faith as God positions him to bless the rest of the world. May it be said of some of his other children, perhaps me, you, our children, that he would use us carrying that piece of information to somebody else that needs it. The answer to life's most important question, what have you done with Jesus? As for Melchizedek, who he is, what that's all about, that'll have to wait, probably till we study Hebrews. But next week, we'll turn to chapter 15, one of my favorites. Till then, we need to sign off in prayer, and we'll get Mr. Brown to take us home. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, for what it means, for how it can change our minds, change our behavior, change our values. Lord, may we not, at least in the category of the business for which you died, the gospel and the Great Commission, may we not have an allergy to commitment. May we stumble even if necessary, but to move in the trajectory of you as we walk by faith, chosen as we are, with the answer that others need to know, need to have, need to understand. Lord, may you be God, and may we be quiet. We ask this in your name. Amen.